836. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us right after the 9 o'clock news. have a big announcement about something we've got coming up that you will hopefully want to participate in. We start off the program today like we do every program, three big things, things that I think you need to know about as you start your day to talk about at work or at the gym or with your significant other at the coffee closet, at the lunch table, whatever. Big thing number one. Two days down on hearings for Neil Gorsuch, who is President Trump's nominee to uh, be on the United States Supreme Court. And two days in, despite taking everything that the Democrats have um, as it stands now, Judge Gorsuch just untouched, just absolutely untouched. Some people are referring to him kind of as, as the Teflon nominee. Well, it's, it's not really the Teflon nominee. What's happened is... Donald Trump has appointed somebody who is eminently, eminently qualified to be on the United States Supreme Court. Now, admittedly, you know, he's not the choice of Democrats. They would like to have somebody who was liberal, but you're not going to get that. Elections have consequences. That's what happened when Barack Obama won, and he was able to put some of his justices on who were very, very liberal. So, I mean, that, that's not who Gorsuch is. But there's no question at all, and if you had any doubt in your mind, you watch what's been going on over the course of the last two days, and it's very, very clear that this man is eminently qualified. And candidly, you know, nobody's been able to lay a hand on him. He's He has approached the confirmation hearings, in my opinion, exactly like one should. First of all, he, he said, look, I, I'm not going to speculate on future cases. You can create different fact scenarios, and I'm just not going to play along with this because these cases might come up in the future. Um, he's a number of Democrats were trying to get him to agree that he would maybe look at Citizens United. Citizens United is the case that essentially allows um, corporations to participate, put money into the system. He said, look, I'm not going to relitigate this now. You know, my advice would be if people have issues with the court's decision in this case, from a number of years ago, um, Senator, it's in your court. You pass different laws. You try to deal with the issues. And then, you know, if the case comes up, we'll do it. Um, he's been pushed on the whole issue of abortion. He's, again, refused to state where he comes down on that, other than to say that he believes in the value of precedent. And as as a reality, I think it's going to be very difficult in 2017 to see Roe versus Wade ever overturned. But he wouldn't commit on on doing that one way or the other. He just said, hey, look, this is you know, these are matters that might come up beforehand. One of the things that they went after him on hard was a dissent he wrote in a case um, involving a truck driver whose trailer brakes froze, leaving him freezing um, in sub-zero temperatures in Illinois. And the argument was you know, he was in the dissent as to whether or not the truck driver could recover. His his response was, look, this was a tough case, but. I follow the law, and in my view, the law in this case resulted in the truck driver not being able to recover. That's that's just it. And so if you have a beef, well, you should have a beef with the lawmakers, not with me. And that to me is, see, that's the response that I think conservative justices or judges need need to have. One of the problems you get into with liberal activist judges is when they decide to set themselves up as the arbitrator of what is right and and what is is fair. Sometimes the law, sometimes there are bad laws. Sometimes applying the law as it is written results in a a situation or result or an outcome which is is not ideal. Or you might say it's not fair. 
but then it's up to the legislature to change the law. I don't think you want rogue judges running around just deciding, okay, I don't like this particular outcome. I understand what the law says, and if I apply the law this way, this is going to be what the outcome is. Well, I don't like that outcome. I don't think that's fair. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to not follow the law, or I'm going to look for ways to try to get around the law to get a result that I want. I mean, I think judges have an obligation to apply the law. And then if the outcome is unfair or the outcome is bad, then what you do is you use it as a basis to go back and say, okay, we need to change the law. That's the way the system works. And I think it is very, very dangerous. And you've seen some of that over the last few months and the last couple of years where you have individual judges who set themselves up as kings or queens and decide, I know what the outcome should be. This is how I want something to turn out. So regardless of what the law says, I'm going to try to, all right, make it, I'm going to try to bend the law to come out with the result I want. And if you're on, if you're on the side, if you support, hey, the, the person suing or being sued or whatever, and you think, you know, you want to have them win, that, 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 that's great if you've got a judge that's willing to bend the law to try to get a result. But what if you're on the other side? If the law is going to operate, it needs to operate fairly. There are bad laws that are out there. I fully acknowledge it. But judges are supposed to interpret the laws. And then if the result is bad or it's unfair or it's whatever, the legislature changes the law, modifies the law, does away with the law. The executive branch, the governor, the president signs that into law, and then you handle it. Um, I think Gorsuch did an absolutely tremendous job. His final day of hearings is today. And unless there's some smoking gun that's out there, um, he will sail through the confirmation process. Now, again, by sail, I mean all the Democrats are going to vote against him because it's been very, made very clear by liberal activists that that's what they have to do. But he's going to get 52 votes. If they try to filibuster this, there's no question in my mind um, that, that the Senate will, just like Harry Reid did before, they will change the rules to allow for an up or down vote. So um, Neil Gorsuch, two days of hearings. He remains absolutely, completely, totally untouched. And for some of us who were skeptical about the Donald Trump presidency and folks who argued, well, it's important that he makes a good Supreme Court appointment, um, I have to say, this is a very, very good Supreme Court appointment. Coming up, a local company, big thing number two, fires 150 workers and then, if possible, manages to add insult to injury I will share that story with you, and then we will discuss. It's 843, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right. I, 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 the only place I've seen this reported is is in the Business Journal. I'm not saying it hasn't been reported elsewhere, but I, I've only seen it in the Business Journal. A Manpower, big, big Milwaukee-based company, announced last week that they are, were eliminating 150 jobs at their Milwaukee headquarters. This is what this, the statement says. The following is a statement from the company. Like many organizations, we are investing in technology to deliver the competitive solutions our customers expect. Automation and new technologies reduce the need for manual business processes, which impacts certain jobs and skill sets. Unfortunately, over the next to 3 to 12 months, there will be approximately 150 job losses in our Milwaukee headquarters as we continue to automate and digitize our business. We have great people, and those are that are impacted are being supported without placement and career transition benefits. Okay, so you mean you hear that, and it's automation. Um, it's just the, these jobs are going away. It's just unfortunate. We're going to support them. I want to share with you an email I received yesterday. Uh, guy gives me his name. He says, Jeff, 
I'm a retired electrical engineer, having worked 42 years in the Milwaukee area. My wife and I are enjoying our retirement years. We have three children who are employed in Wisconsin and who are trying to achieve the American dream of working hard to complete their education and find a good-paying job. Hopefully someday they might also be able to enjoy a few retirement years. Our daughter graduated from college, worked in the accounting field for six years, and took a job as an accountant with Manpower here in Milwaukee a little over a year ago. She was enjoying her employment with Manpower until last week when it was announced that 150 jobs, including hers, would be outsourced to India within approximately the next six months. These employees were told that they could continue to work during this time period. However, they would be required to also train their replacements. They were told that if they continued to work during the time period and adequately trained their India replacements, they would be paid a severance fee and a bonus. However, if they did not remain employed by manpower during this time, or if they failed to adequately train their replacement, they would not receive any severance pay nor any bonus. Following training, the India replacements would return to India, and the manpower jobs would be outsourced to the company in India who sent these workers for training in Milwaukee. The manpower jobs being affected do not appear to be easily automated jobs. They include accounting, finance, IT, and shared services. Manpower's outsourcing of American jobs is very similar to that done by other employers in the USA, um, including the USCF Medical Center, Northeast Utilities, and even Disney during the past several years. There was a 60 Minutes program recently aired discussing how American companies have outsourced American jobs utilizing a twisted interpretation of the H. Um, 1B visa program, which our federal government created in 1990 to attract and hold the brightest and most talented foreign graduates from other countries, along with a congressional loophole approved by Congress to allow um, this activity for any jobs paying over 60000 per year. The program pointed out that the only reason companies are outsourcing jobs is corporate greed with short-term and short-sighted cost savings and salaries and benefits totaling multi-millions of dollars. And then he goes on to talk about President Trump referred to this type of corporate greed in his campaign. Hopefully he will pursue his promise to pass legislation to stop this type of activity, which will otherwise destroy our children and grandchildren's dreams. In the meantime, I would much appreciate if you can take action on your radio program to inform your listeners of what is happening right here in Milwaukee. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Obviously, there is a time when you know, corporations have to get leaner. And sometimes you, you automate. Sometimes jobs just disappear. And that is an unfortunate thing, but it is a reality. At the same time, you, you do have some companies who are making the decisions to ship jobs overseas. And in this particular case, at least if these suggestions are true, not only are the jobs being shipped overseas, but the people who are losing their jobs are expected to train their replacements. Is this corporate greed or is this just business as usual? Should something be done to stop companies from doing this or in the free market, if you can make a little bit more money by getting rid of American jobs, outsourcing them to India or wherever, I mean, is, is that just good business? If it's good for the stock price, is it good for the company? Is it good for the country? Business as usual or something that we need to perhaps consider reining in. And I don't know about you, Hondo, but if I were told that my job was being eliminated, that that's one thing. That's a tough pill to swallow. 
But if I was also then told that over the course of the next three to six months, if I want to keep my job, I have to train the guy who's going to take my job, who is then going to go back to India to do my job, I have to admit that would be a tough pill for me to swallow. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your thoughts we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. And once again, you can text us as well, 414-799-1620. It's 852. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 854, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, Manpower, big local company, announces last week with, with didn't get much attention, that they're getting rid of 150 jobs. Their statement is, well, we're, we're investing in technology, we're going to, we're going to automate, so unfortunately these jobs go away. Well, at least according to the emails I'm getting, that's not completely accurate. The jobs aren't necessarily going away. They're going to India. And people who are losing their jobs are being told, hey, you know, you, you can hang around for another three to six months, but you've got to train your replacement from India who's then going to go back to India. And if you do it fine, you'll get severance pay. Otherwise, you're, you're out. Talk about adding insult to injury. Jeff on the West Side. Jeff, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um, yeah, this is actually my wife's last day at a, a different company, not Manpower, but uh, is the 31st. Right. And, uh, and her company had started with kind of up middle management people, and she thought she was safe. But then uh, her department, uh, a lot of her, well, her and many of the jobs are going overseas, right. um, being done offshore. Um, uh, she's one of the few people that's actually kind of excited about it because, She's been wanting to build her own business for a long time, but hasn't had the time. And the right. severance package is quite nice, and she's, she's right. uh, looking at it as an opportunity. But a lot of the people there, I mean, you know, what are they going to do? <laughs> well, 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 exactly. And, of course, and this is one where at least it, it doesn't appear the jobs are going away. It appears that the jobs are being shipped over. See, I understand yeah. automation. I get, you know, you, you put in the automated kiosk at the Wendy's so people can order. I mean, I understand all that, but that doesn't appear what this is. This woman's an yeah. accountant, and she's got to train the guy. Ah, thanks for and see, and this, I understand it is business, but still, uh, let's see, on our text line, I lost my job at GE Medical the same way back in the early 2000s. I had to train my replacement after, 15, after five years with GE Medical in Waukesha. I felt insulted and disgusted, but I needed the bonus in order to um, – you know, pay my bills while I found a new job, and I had young children at the time. Another text, I also lost my job at Eaton Corporation in Mexico in, in 2009. Um, let's see, uh, it's just, you know, um, it, it's just one of the, these frustrating things that are out there. And again, do, do companies have a right to do it? I, I guess right now. But at the same time, if the, you, you just you just wonder whether or not it's one thing if the jobs go away because of automation but it's just here we're going to ship the jobs overseas and by the way you know we've got you you know we've got you so you have to train your replacements um let's talk to sue in kenosha sue you're on 620 wtmj good morning hi um my company did this about three years ago exact thing it uh shared services accounting um it's been a nightmare they even went a step farther where they targeted people with over 20 years. So now you've got people in their 50s who um, may not be eligible for other jobs because they've worked there all their lives. Right. And not only did they have to train their Indian replacements, some of them even had to go to India for a few weeks to do it. <laughs> and I'll tell you. No, knowing that they were going to lose their jobs. 
knowing that they were yeah. going to lose their jobs, they have to fly to India to train the person that's going to be taking their job. Wow. Exactly. And and that's the only way they would get their severance pay. And um, being left behind, it's not pretty. The stuff, you, you lose the experience with it. And um, stuff gets delayed. Some of our IT projects are six months delayed, and it just has not been fun. Well, well, yeah, I mean, and it's just, I'm, and again, right now there's no prohibition of doing this, but this is one of the things that when Donald Trump talks about America first, some people see this as this kind of xenophobic thing, but what he's talking about, I think, is saying, you know, we, you know, we expect something of companies, and we understand that, you know, companies have to make tough decisions, but at some point in time, do you have to think about the workers that you are impacting? And again, if this is true that manpower is doing what it appears that they are doing, you, you wonder, Yes, you can get away with it, and yes, the people need the jobs, and yes, you can force them to do it. But my goodness, who thought this was a good idea? Now, thanks for the call. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, let's see. We've got Sam who writes, you know, we do have to rein this in. No nation can survive under these circumstances. No country can engage in long-term planning when every job and funding, when every job and funding is leaving the, the country. Um, and that's... That's apparently what's going on. So this is the backstory. Big thing number two, what appears to be going on here, and again, this manpower layoff firings hasn't gotten that much attention, but it doesn't appear to be just automation. It appears to be we're shipping jobs overseas, and for the people, in order to keep their job for a couple more months, they've got to train their replacements. Coming up, big thing number three and a special announcement. Stick around. It's 859. Coming up in 20 minutes, uh, again, a story that, other than one TV station, I'm not sure anybody has covered this, a lawsuit filed yesterday against MPS by uh, St. Joan Antita High School regarding MPS's alleged failure to follow state law in helping get kids to school. And we're going to be talking to the head of school from St. Joan Antita High School um, in about 20 minutes or so to explain that lawsuit and why he got involved in pushing this instance in the first place. So um, stick around. That is coming up. I continue to be bombarded with uh, texts and emails about these manpower layoffs. Here's just one final thought. Karen writes, I was one of the people manpower laid off in a similar action three years ago. I can tell you it's true. The people then had to train their replacements. In my case, my teammate had to train my replacement. Bear in mind, my teammate was an experienced professional trainer and communicator, yet she had a great deal of difficulty training my replacement for the company in India the company in India provided and went through several people before they found someone who could do the job. The problem wasn't that my teammate wasn't able to train the person good enough. The problem was that the people provided by the company in India weren't good enough to do the job. So it is true the people getting laid off now won't get their severance and bonus. If Manpower decides they didn't do a good enough job training their replacements, then I would be at least uh, bet at least half of those employees won't get any money owed to them. And one more thing. This is what Karen writes. Contrary to what Manpower is trying to claim, the positions are not being eliminated due to automation or new technology. The people in those types of jobs were laid off years ago. The people losing their jobs now are skilled positions, and they are simply swapping cheaper outsourced labor for American employees in the same positions. How ironic for a company that claims to put people to work. And that would at least be consistent with the email I received from the guy whose daughter was losing her job. She's an accountant. I mean, she's you, know, that you, would, you don't think of an accountant. That's not 
that's not the type of job that you're going to lose to automation. So there is also, again, this irony that manpower, manpower who tries to provide jobs for people is outsourcing their own jobs. Okay, big thing number three, screaming headlines in the Madison paper. Wisconsin had second worst presidential election turnout decline since 2012. Now, I admit when I, I like to think of myself as being at least a little bit smart. And I, I had to read that headline three times to figure out what exactly, what exactly it meant when they were saying Wisconsin had second worst presidential election turnout decline since 2012. That's not the second worst presidential election turnout since 2012 it is is decline so what they're what they're saying um a matter of fact voter turnout in the november election ranked fifth in the nation so wisconsin voters turned out we were number five in the nation when it comes to voter turnout okay so that's something good but from 2012 to 2016 there was a a drop-off Right? There was a drop off. Fewer, fewer people voted in 2016 than voted in 2012. So this study comes out and it says, Wisconsin, if you look at the dropout, even though a ton of people voted, if you look at the drop between 2012 and 2016, this was one of the largest in the country, the drop. But, of course, we started from a very high point. Okay, so you, you wonder, what is the point here? Well, here's what, here's what the um, author says. He says, well, um, when you look at Wisconsin's drop, as well as the drop in Mississippi, which also had a huge decline in turnout, he says, um, I don't want to say that it's because of, wait for it, voter ID, but Mississippi and Wisconsin both had voter ID, so you've got the voter ID requirement, and now in Wisconsin, you know, you've got this this decline um at least per capita from 2012 to 2016. So therefore, it, you know, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it might be voter ID. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Feel free to disagree with me on this, but I think that is a load of hooey, and I am not buying what they are shoveling. Yes, first of all, lots and lots of people in Wisconsin voted. Voter ID, in my opinion, didn't stop one person who wanted to go to the polls from being able to vote. Maybe that is too extreme. Voter ID didn't stop more than 10 people who wanted to go to the polls and vote from being able to vote. So I just don't believe that. To the extent that there was a decline in turnout, it's not because of voter ID. It was because in Wisconsin, people did not like the choices presented. Barack Obama, love him or hate him, Barack Obama was a vote magnet. In 2008 and 2012, you had huge, huge turnouts, particularly among, you know, like the African-American community where voter turnout historically isn't necessarily that great. It turned out because they wanted to, people wanted to vote for somebody that looked like them. I, I get it. In 2016, you had... A lot of people who were just disgusted by the choices. Republicans, people didn't like Donald Trump, people didn't like Hillary Clinton, and a lot of people stayed home. To the extent people stayed home, it wasn't because of voter ID. And I guess I'm tired of this tired sort of argument saying, well, you know, there was a decline, you know, uh, there was a decline in voting. It must have been voter ID. 
Noah in West Bend. Noah, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I love the show, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, Got to tell you, I am with you. I am so sick of hearing about voter ID. I, I work with adults with disabilities and recently had to help one of them get an ID. And it took us about 15 minutes and he didn't pay a dime. Right. So if you don't have an ID and that's why you're not voting, that's your choice. That's laziness. That has nothing to do with an inability to get one. And I will say I agree with your second point that, you know, I am one of those people who I voted in the past two elections, except not 2016. Right. Because, quite frankly, I wasn't going to elect Hillary. Right. I didn't really like Trump. And so I just, I, I, I didn't have a vote to cast. I didn't like either of them. Yeah, um, and, and, and I, I think, think that happened to a lot of people. Fall off. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the ID thing is so played out. They it, just need to get over it. I, see, I couldn't agree more. I mean, thanks for calling. No, I mean, it's just it, it is this fr- people were not excited or many people were not excited about the choices you had in 2016. What motivates people, particularly the casual voters? Look, I mean, I, I'm going to vote every election regardless. But what motivates people to, to go out and vote is being excited about the candidates. That's what happened. Barack Obama was able to capture that. Scott Walker, you know, to an extent, was able to capture that as well. People are going to run through brick walls to cast their votes. That's not what was going on in 2016 among large points, you know, percentages of the uh, electorate. Uh, Jeff writes, I was going to say the same thing. I didn't go to the polls because I had no one to vote for unless I wanted to waste it on a third party that had no chance. And that's... Voter ID has nothing to do with turnout in the 2016 election in Wisconsin. It was all about the choices that people had, the lack of enthusiasm that some people, and I understand some of you were really excited to vote for Hillary or some were really excited to vote for Donald Trump, but it was a different dynamic. And trying to suggest that it is anything other than that is tired, it's old, I'm not buying what they are shoveling. 34, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, St. Joan Antita is a Catholic, all-girls, very, very well-regarded high school. It's located um, 1341 North Cass Street. It, it's it's in downtown Milwaukee. It's been, it's been around since the mid-50s. Again, very, very well thought of. It, it's, it's just an absolutely outstanding institution. Yesterday, um, the high school... Involved, got involved in litigation against MPS over busing, and it is a fascinating story. We're joined right now by Paul Gessner, who is the head of school for St. Joan Antita. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining me. T- tell me a little bit about the background. I'm going to ask you in a couple minutes about why you got involved in this, but what is what is the essence of the lawsuit? Why are you suing MPS? Well, I- I've been head of school at St. Joan Antita for five years, and when I first got here, um, I was told that there was nothing we could do about busing, and, and, and I knew from my previous life as a, an administrator and teacher in MPS that there were schools in the private sector that got busing. Um, so I, I, I um, just assumed that um, I was told, you know, there, it, it's, not, it's not possible, so we never pursued it. Um, there was um, some inclination in about 2015 that that Law or that rule was changing, and so I went to a meeting and asked MPS administration if we, as a citywide Catholic high school, um, would be eligible for busing. And I was told you would be citywide and you should apply. Mm-hmm. After a nine-month process, 
I got one, and I, I sat through meetings where I produced student birth certificates. I produced, um, I produced proof of address, and um, it, was a fairly, it was a fairly long process. I got a one-sentence um, one email back saying, we don't, we don't cover high schools. So that's what led me to investigate further and how we ended up working with uh, uh, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Now, let's talk a little bit about at least your understanding of state law when, when you talk about busing, because it's my understanding under state law that, 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 in this case, MPS has an obligation, just like they have an obligation to provide busing to get their students to the public schools, they have a legal obligation to provide busing under certain circumstances to get students who attend Mesmer or St. Joan Antietam or whatever to their schools. Yes, yeah, so um, the the... Uh, there's a lot of rules that MPS applies to its own students, like there's a two-mile limit, um, so an attendance zone. You have to live b- more than two miles away from where Correct. you go to school, in other words. Okay, Right, ahead. and um, MPS has some schools that they have deemed to be citywide, like Golda Meir and Rufus King, where they provide uh, yellow bus transportation for their students. And since... Um, all of my students live more than two miles from the school. We are a citywide school. Um, the, the way I understand the laws that has been explained to me is that then our students are to be treated the same as MPS students. So if MPS is going to bus students from, say, the northwest side to Golda Meir, they have a similar obligation to bus your students from the northwest side to St. Joan Antietam. Correct. And Golda Meir um, High School is less than a mile from us. So it is it is um almost almost identical what paul what what is the impact that the the failure to have busing provided what is the impact that that has on st joan antita so uh, the financial impact is that uh we pay $108,000 a year for uh yellow buses for our students um and we do that because um our students would not be able to get here. You know, it's, it's, it's very different, and I've been hearing a lot of arguments from people saying, oh, you know, in my day, I just took the city bus, or, um, you know, I walked to school, or my parents drove me. And it's, it's not the same as it was, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Right. And so safe and reliable transportation for students to get to school is kind of a basic right. And so if, if, if our parents don't have a way to get their, their daughters here, then they go somewhere else. And it's, we, you know, and I appreciated, I appreciate your intro talking about really our longstanding tradition and really offering a high quality education. And we're very proud of that. And, you know, 97% of our students are um, choice and on free and reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. So we have a high poverty population. Um, we are culturally, ethnically, religiously diverse. We are very proud of what we do, and we think that, we think that all students who, all, all young women who want to come here should have that option. And if MPS is required to provide them with a bus, then MPS needs to provide them with a bus. So from a, from a practical matter, let's say you have a, a low-income family that wants to send their daughter to St. Joan Antietam. They live on the northwest side. Uh, but they're being told, well, you know, you can, you're going to have to pay for transportation. You're going to have to figure it out. Um, that, that impacts your ability to recruit students to, to come to the school, I would imagine. It is the number one question we get in, um, when, when 
when families are applying, they come to our open house, and the very first question is, do you have a bus? If my answer would be no, um, we would immediately, for at least half of those families, not be an option anymore. Now, I was reading the criminal complaint, uh, the, sorry, I was reading the, the civil complaint here, the, the lawsuit, and what it alleges is that out of a school, po- you have about, what, 114 students, is that right? Uh, we have 140 girls. 100, 140 girls, mm-hmm. but the, the estimates are that there's about 70 that are implicated by this, and so your school is essentially eating a cost somewhere around $108,000 to, to bus them to, to school that you at least believe that MPS should be legally obligated to provide that to provide that service. Yes, and and you know, and there's a there's another um, sort of um, ancillary argument too is that MPS puts all sorts of um, arbitrary deadlines on us as a as a private school. So you have to have your attendance roster to them by July 1st. If uh, if you have not registered the student and their address. By that time, they're not eligible for transportation. Well, MPS doesn't provide, doesn't uh, require that same thing of their students. So um, anybody who decides to come to St. Jones in July or August or September automatically is not eligible. I would, I would say that I would have probably 120 girls on that list if right. that rule were not in place. The, I, I know last fall, back in, in November, um, there was a notice of claim, which is a precursor to a lawsuit, that, that was sent to MPS. Um, has MPS a- explained why they are refusing to at least arguably comply with the law? Have they given you any explanations to why they're not doing this? No. there's been There was no response to me. <laughs> okay. Um, now, we're, of course, the, the, the lawsuit in this case is St. Joan Antietam. Um, I guess this this would affect potentially other, say, Catholic schools in the area as well, like Mesmer and stuff, right? Yes, I I believe that um, that uh, there are students in other high schools who would meet the the requirements of if the school is a citywide school um, and the students live more than two miles away, then they would be eligible for busing as well. The some people might might say, Paul, that well, look, this is it's you have a parochial school. Um, why should big picture, you know, why should the public school system, which you know, arguably maybe your school is competing with some of the you know MPS schools, why should MPS have to help your students get to your school? Um, I guess my simple answer is that that's what the law requires. So, um, you know, and I, I. I, um, you know, I, I, having been in MPS in my prior life for 15 years, um, I don't um, buy into the argument that, um, you know, that this is, a, this is a zero-sum game. It's about the quality of education for every student. And so there are, you know, it, there are opportunities that are being made available to families and families have that choice. And so if part of the requirement by the law is that um, transportation needs to be provided by the public school system, then our position is that we would be negligent if we did not advocate for our families in this way. I mean, if it's, if it's a right that our families have, then it's our job to ensure that that right um, uh, is given to them. 
Well, I also think, you know, one of the key things, that's why I'm glad you could come on to talk about this, is is the fact that this that this is done at a cost. So so right now your school is shelling out north of a hundred thousand dollars to arrange for this transportation that MPS, at least according to the allegations, should be providing. And my guess is that that hundred and eight thousand dollars, there's all sorts of other things that you could use that money on if you had it available instead of having to pay for busing. Yeah, that that dollar amount is equal to what we spend on, we offer a four-year engineering program. We have an international baccalaureate diploma and career-related program. That, that um, the busing is equal to each of those programs. So it is, a, um, it's fairly significant. And, you know, we could um, expand elective options for our kids. So there are, there's all sorts of things that um, would enhance the quality of the academic experience for our kids, um, but you know, the I mean, we're committed to we're committed to providing the transportation. Right. And you, as a practical matter, you need to do it to compete, like you were saying earlier. Because if you didn't do that, a lot of families just wouldn't be able to send their kids to your school. Correct. Right. Um, I, again, and just you, you got no response at all from MPS as to why why they are refusing to honor what you interpret the law to be. It was just, it's been crickets, huh? And I, yeah, there was nothing to me. And I, I, I believe they may have had, you know, like the, the city attorney may have contacted um, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, but there is not, there's not been any um, formal communication with me. Um, Paul Gessner, head of school. I love that title. That, that's, like, that's like principal, right? Um, it's, <laughs> actually, it's a combined role. So okay. in Catholic schools, it's principal and president is Got head it. of school. Got <laughs> it. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Paul Gessner, head of school for St. Joan Antietam High School. Thanks for joining me today. Hopefully we can uh, check in as this case works its way through the court system. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, in, interesting. Interesting. This has been bubbling around for a, a while. And I, I do think what, what you have what you have had happen on a regular basis is – whether it's it's selling school buildings to you know, vacant school buildings to charter or choice schools um, or this busing instance, you, you have MPS, which is clearly afraid of competition, and at least in my opinion, has done pretty much everything they can to try to make it more difficult for that competition, even if that results in a higher quality educational experience. I guess it's ultimately you know for the courts to decide whether state law means what it appears to say it means which is that if you're St. Joan Antietam, you know, MPS has an obligation to provide, you know, busing for the kids that live more than two miles away, just like it provides busing for the kids who live on the northwest side that go to Gold of My Ear. Um, the courts will ultimately decide that, but um, MPS, I think, clearly was hoping this goes away, and the answer is it's not. We'll continue to keep you updated. It's 947. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. That is, of course, the theme to the gong show. Now, if you are a regular listener to this program, you know that I am a fan of of junk TV. I, you know, at reality TV, junk TV, call it what you want. I'm just, I, I am mesmerized by this stuff. 
one of my big regrets is that Full Throttle Saloon, the dive bar that they opened up and that opened up for like two weeks during the Sturgis bike rally every year, the thing burned down two years ago. It used to be a reality TV show, and in my defense, I got John McCure hooked on it. McCure and I used to watch the thing. It was just, it was, it was just incredibly bad. But nevertheless, it kind of just like drew you in. So I, I love junk TV. And as I look back on my misbegotten boyhood, what I find is that I, I've always loved junk TV. I come by that legitimately. And there's no finer example of junk TV than, than the Gong Show. Um, Gong Show was on TV when I was in college. And I can remember, actually, if I didn't have a class scheduled or something, I'd, I'd want to sit in the union or I'd want to go home for the ability to watch the, the Gong Show, which was a creation of a guy named Chuck Barris who really had an extremely interesting life. He was a songwriter in the 50s, um, was responsible for some some hit songs, including Palisades Park. In the 60s, he's the one that developed the, the dating game. And if you were a certain age, you will remember the dating game where they had you know three bachelors that competed for a date with the bachelorette or, or vice versa. He created the newlywed game where you had newlywed couples that would come on and answer questions to see how well they knew each other. And then, you know, a number of other perhaps less successful game shows as well. But the dating game was this big one, the new league wed game. Then he did other stuff called like the parent game, the family game that those didn't really go over. But then he hit on the gong show, which was what was kind of like, it was kind of like a precursor to, to American idol in in a way in, in, in a weird sort of way. But what would happen is you'd have these people that would come on and they would do they would do their performances and you had three judges and they would they would end up going you. The show became kind of a caricature because you had a lot of people who had genuinely like bad acts. But if you were growing up in the 70s, you know, you, you chances are you kind of watched the gong show, not necessarily because you liked it, but because you wanted to see what was going to happen next. Um, show ran for a couple years, and then it, it was a fad, and then it kind of bombed out. I was telling Gene Miller and Jane Matinere earlier today, they, met, they did a gong show movie, I want to say in 1980. The thing lasted all of about a week in, in the theaters. I have somewhere, I have a VHS tape of the gong show movie. I don't think there's too many of those out there. Um, I don't think I have a VHS player anymore, but I have a VHS tape of, of the Gong Show movie. But in any event, Chuck Barris was the creator. Um, he, he went on to claim that he was a CIA assassin. He wrote this this book called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. They, they made that into a movie with George Clooney a while back. Um, it's uh, and, and whenever people would say to him, you know, okay, can you show us any sort of proof that you were really like a, a CIA assassin? He'd say, well, you know, when 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 have you... When have you ever heard a CIA assassin, you know, acknowledge that? When has the CIA ever said who worked for them? Which I guess is a point. In any event, Chuck Barris, who was an ultimate schlockmeister, but somebody who provided me hours and hours of entertainment over the years, passed away yesterday at the age of 87. It's 955, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Coming up in less than 10 minutes, what makes something a national treasure? And sometimes, is old historic, or is old just old? We'll discuss that as part of our dealer's choice coming up, like I say, in about 10 minutes. Ah, another story out there. Yesterday, we we heard that Hillary Clinton was going to, what was her phrase, come out of the woods and start being more of of a presence, to which my response was, oh, my goodness gracious, really? All right, that same category. Here's the story. Russ Feingold. Remember Russ Feingold? 
Russ Feingold, who lost to Ron Johnson six years ago. He was going to be the great liberal hope. He ran against Ron Johnson and lost again to Ron Johnson. Russ Feingold refuses to go quietly into the good night. It's kind of like what part of you've lost in two consecutive elections don't you understand? Russ Feingold launches new issue group. Former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold says he is launching a new group that will advocate for voting rights, redistricting reform, campaign finance laws, and the abolition of the Electoral College, among other things. He says the political process is all screwed up, and so I need to offer this new group. It'll be a nonprofit advocacy organization. The question I have is how much of the money this raises will be used to pay for salaries of Russ Feingold and some of his hangers-on as opposed to true issue advocacy. But the big picture here, Russ Feingold, for God's sake, what part of no, you lose elections, do not, do you not understand? I can't really believe that this would be Feingold's effort to try to keep himself relevant for yet a third run. But again, who knows? It's 959, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1009, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jane, hang around for just a second. All right, I need to give, I need to give a PG-13 related warning here. So if you're driving around the car with the little pictures and you don't want this discussion, just just check out. Let's, can we can we cue the music? The my PG. Just come back and come back in five minutes. I, I promise. Come come back in five minutes. But but okay. PG thirteen. All right. We we we. All right. Okay. All right. PG thirteen. Jane, I need some female perspective sure. on this. Happy to. All right. I, I'm I'm watching today's TMJ four yesterday. The headline in the story by my friend Julia Fellow is Principal Accuses Wisconsin Girl of Selling Sex Toys at School. Caught my attention. A Racine, Wisconsin family says the principal um, and the girl who is 12 years old attends Trinity Lutheran School on Geneva Street in Racine. She has been accused and sent home for selling sex toys at the school. All right, so I'm thinking, oh, wow, what, 12-year-old Lutheran School sex toys? What's going on? Um well, it is a toy, and it's called a water snake wiggly. Now, what what it is is like a giant water balloon. Is what it, did you've seen it too, I right, have. Jane? Mm-hmm. It, it's like it's like a it's like a giant. Well, I mean, I, I I guess you could say maybe it looks kind of like a condom, but it's a giant like it's a water balloon. You yeah. fill it with water, and then it's squishy. You know, you 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 squeeze it, and it's kind of like I have a stress ball that I squeeze. Exactly. That, that, yeah. That, okay. So so that's it. So the principal whistles the kid in and says she was selling what they thought were were sex toys. The school's pastor said the issue already went before the school board, which sided with the the principal. The dad says, in your wildest imagination, no adult could possibly view this as a sex toy. It is a water-filled bag. Now, I quickly get beyond my depth when it comes to discussing sex toys. Oh, you're so modest. <laughs> So I, I asked you to hang around for just a minute, Jane. I, I mean, okay, it, it's a, it's a, like a, it's a water balloon. Um, th- am I missing something? <laughs> no, I, no, you're not, because I saw a picture of it earlier this morning. That was the furthest thought from my mind. <laughs> right. That this was a sex toy. I mean, it, it. There's no batteries. It doesn't plug in. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's like imagine a, imagine a squishy water balloon, which is, yeah, you know, and I, I. I, I think it takes a fair amount of imagination to look at that and make that leap. Uh, it does, and, and I mean, and I saw the kid on TV, and, and she's saying, 
Now, I, I think it's a fair question as to why the teacher gave her permission to to sell these things, you know, during recess at during school. But but I don't. But the teacher clearly didn't perceive these to be sex toys. The teacher believed these to be, they're like stress balls, they're, right? As, as you said, a squishy water balloon, a squishy, you know, stress balloon. I, okay, well, I just, I wanted the female perspective on this just because I, I, I'm looking at this thing and I guess, okay, again, PG-13 related warning. I guess maybe you can make an argument that it's, it's somewhat phallic. Maybe I, you're rolling your eyes at me, Jane. Not really. Boy, I have a comeback and I just can't. <laughs> we're, we're, okay. <laughs> okay. This is, this is Jane Metnir being the grown up and saying, I'm going to exercise this great. I mean, maybe you could make the, but you, I mean, honest to goodness, I, there, there's, if that's going to be the criteria, there's all sorts of other stuff that you could probably find in the school cafeteria that fits that category more. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not approved. I appreciate that schools have to, you know, crack down on things, but this, is this a glorified water balloon? And, You've got the girl's father who is a little bit upset. I my guess is they probably had to explain to the twelve year old girl what a sex toy was, and whatever that might be, um, water snake wigglies. I don't think many people would would fit that in. But anyways, that's that's how they view this. Um, all right, let us switch gears. Uh, this is the segment of the program I call Dealer's Choice. It's one of the things that I think is. Not necessarily the biggest, the most significant issue of the day, but one that I find to be the most talkable. And breaking news today is the Mitchell Park Domes have now been named a national treasure by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Now, this isn't you know officially a government agency, but they, they say that the Mitchell Park Domes, and you know we've talked about this before, the domes were built in in the sixties. The Construction methods that were used were classic 1960s type of of construction. You know, you had the glass, you had the the metal supports. Um, They don't build those things now like they did back in the early 1960s when they built the domes. And the reason is because construction techniques have advanced dramatically over the last 50 years. Now, my point has always been, when it comes to stuff that's old, there is always a useful lifespan of things. And not everything that is old is historic. Sometimes it's just old. And sometimes, sometimes, things outlive their usefulness. And rather than trying to say, let's take millions and millions of dollars and put it into an old, antiquated, decrepit building. Sometimes it's best just to say that the building it was great. It's u- it served its utility. Now we have to move on. Well, anyhow, this this group that has now said this is a a national treasure says we, we have to, we have to keep this. And there, there's no way that we could lose or should lose this structure. Now the estimates are in order to upgrade and repair the domes um most people seem to think it's going to cost 60 to 70 million dollars at a time when there's all sorts of cultural demands when you know time was coming on went with time now this group says well we think we could do it for 18.6 million um prioritizing the demands the problems that are water leakage but they're, they're saying about 20 million 
most people are saying, no, you're not going to be able to get it done for $20 million. It's going to be 60 or $70 million. But the group is saying the domes are a national treasure, and they need to be preserved at all costs. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Over the years, I have been to the Mitchell Park Domes. I like the experience of going to the Mitchell Park Domes, particularly in the middle of winter where it's great. You walk inside, especially the tropical things, and you think, oh, gosh, there, there is going to be a summer. They've been around for going on 60 years. They are clearly in desperate need of repair. You know, They were closed for a while because you had chunks of concrete that were falling off. There are all sorts of cultural demands that are being put on. You know, the, the, for example, the Milwaukee Public Museum wants to get out of its per- current location. They want to move to another place that's going to be $100 million. You've got the needs for the parks. You've got the needs for the zoo. All right. Is the, are the Mitchell Park Domes really a quote-unquote national treasure? And if it costs tens of millions of dollars to repair them, is it worth the money? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I guess I would be curious as to, you know, how when was the last time you were at the domes? And, you know, if you look at the priorities that are there, should repairing slash replacing them be one of the top priorities? Or are there other national treasures around that are perhaps more worthy of the money? If we accept the fact that we don't have a bottomless pit of money. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to discuss next. It's 1018. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1020. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. A Milwaukee businessman says, says he will soon decide whether or not he'll seek the Democratic nomination for governor next year. Who is he? Why does he think he's a good fit for the job? Why does he think he could beat Scott Walker? Get the details on Wisconsin's Afternoon News page at WTMJ.com. Okay, tonight there's going to be a meeting of um, a committee of the, the county board, county's task force on the domes, is going to be meeting tonight. Um, this preservation group has declared the domes a national treasure and said they must be preserved and maintained at all costs. And they say, hey, we've got this report that says everybody else is wrong. We can fix it for for $20 million, not the 65 or $70 million that everybody else says it's going to cost. All right. I, I look. I, I like the domes. I don't remember the last time I I have been there. I mean, I'm, I'm not anti dome, but at the same time, tastes change, preferences change. We have lots of needs when it comes to like cultural asp- things around here, whether it's the parks or whether it's the art museum or whether it's the downtown museum or whether it's the zoo. So I mean, let's just lay this on the table. Whether it's I mean. Okay, $20 million, you can maybe repair and get a little bit more useful life out of them. A lot of people say what you really need to do is tear them down and build them up again. All right, do we need the domes, and is that where our priority should be? Lewis on the south side. Lewis, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, morning, Jeff. Um, Those domes were built with old technology. Um, It's something we don't need anymore. Just like the Bradley Center isn't going to be used anymore, and yet it's a viable building. The domes are not viable anymore, and why save old technology when we can replace it better? This is a pure waste of money. Well, that I mean, I see. I mean, thanks for coming. That see, that's kind of part of the concern that that I have, Lewis, is that right when, when I'm when I moved into my house, there was this old leaky sunroom that was attached. It was single pane glass. It had been built, I, I want to say, probably in the seventies, and it was single pane glass. It, it had outlived, it leaked, it had outlived its useful life. 
Now, I could have put money into trying to, okay, let, let's caulk around the edges, but I would have still had a sunroom that was built with 1970s technology, and, and they would always have these problems. That made no sense to me. So what we did is we tore down the sunroom and we built a brand new sunroom with, you know, the, the current stuff and, you know, it, it has this whole new utility. I, I'm not a domes, I'm not a domes hater by, by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time, I, I, first of all, I am very skeptical that you're going to be able to, that all these other estimates are, are going to be, are, are wrong and that you can really do it for, you know, $20 million. I, I just don't believe that. I think the reality is it's probably going to be closer to $50, $60, 70000000 million. And at the end of the day, you're still going to have a 60-year-old structure. Isn't it perhaps better to say we're not putting any more money into these things, and then we can decide where are the priorities? I mean, look, for years and years, the circus parade, and I love the circus parade, but you know, at a certain point in time, you know, people got tired of going to the circus parade, and the circus parade kind of went away. Okay, here our text line is exploding. We recently had a company Christmas party at the Domes. It was awesome, and it would be a shame to see them gone. I think there are other ways to fund the repairs. Well, I, again, if the choice was keeping the Domes or getting rid of the Domes, I'd say keep the Domes. But that's not what the choice is. The choice is... Putting 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million dollars that has to come from someplace into the domes, which means that's going to be money that isn't going to other things. It's money that's not going to the museum. It's money that's not going to the zoo. It's money that's not going to the parks. And I guess that's the fundamental question. Do you need this? Is this the best use of that money? Uh, Diane writes, just a question. If some place is a national treasure, are there funds to restore and maintain that treasure? Well, um, you know, the answer is is no. <laughs> I mean, there's not federal money. I mean, it's you know, obviously there'll be some private fundraising that goes on, but you're going to be talking about a large commitment of money, and that's money that is going to come from some other place. So it is, to an extent, kind of a zero-sum game. What's more important? Is supporting the downtown museum more important than supporting the, the domes? And, again, if it was just should you tear down the domes, the answer would be, of course, you don't tear down the domes. It's a wonderful thing. But that's not what the question is. The question is can we really come up with all that dough to to do this? Um, got a note here. Um, what about privatizing it? Well, okay, that, that there's nobody in the private sector that's going to invest 60 50, 40, 30, 20 million dollars into, you know, doing renovations. That's just not going to happen. So it's, it's a reality is it's going to have to be a substantial commitment of public money. And my question is, if we do it, where is the money going to come from? Yes, they, they might. I don't know what makes something a national treasure. I don't know why the domes are more of a national treasure, treasure than, say, the, the zoo is or the museum is or something like that. Um, obviously, this group is trying to. Uh, again, put pressure on people to continue to support the domes and continue to put money in. But if it's 1960s technology, really, at some point in time, you say, don't you have to say maybe this has been a good run, it's had a great 60 years, we enjoy it, we love it, but but now we just can't put another $50 million in. It's sort of like if you've got that 10-year-old car and all of a sudden everything starts breaking and you're looking at three or $4,000 worth of repairs, do you put the money into that, 
Or do you say, maybe it's time to get the new car? Just asking. 1027, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1034, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, on a roster with many pitchers, the Brewers have a decision to make regarding the aging Matt Garza. Let him pitch or eat his salary. Greg Matzik says it's time to part ways. He'll have the discussion tonight on Sports Central at 635. Yeah, he's got uh, Garza one more huge year. I think the Brewers' hope is that he can come out, win a couple games, and then they can trade him to someone or, or dump him or dump the salary so they don't have to pay it. But listen, Greg Matzik does a very, very good job. Um, earlier today... We announced the new date, the date for um, Insight 2017. It's going to be April 19th at the Country Springs Hotel. Tickets go on sale on Friday. One of our themes of the program this year is I want to give you an opportunity to meet the people behind the headlines. And we're finalizing our guest roster, but we've got some great ones. Um, We announced today one one of the segments is going to be devoted to uh, we've got not one, not two, but three justices from the state of Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, Annette Ziegler, very, very well known in the area. Rebecca Bradley, who was elected to a 10-year term last April. And the newest member of the state Supreme Court, Daniel Kelly. All three justices are going to be joining me, and we're going to talk about what it's like to be a state Supreme Court justice and how you got there. Um, lots more guests that we'll be announcing over the course of the next couple days. But mark your calendars. Tickets go on sale on Friday. Insight 2017 at the Country Springs Hotel. It's going to be on Wednesday, April 19th, and then we record the show for broadcast the following day. All right, we are monitoring this breaking situation, and and it's, as with any of these breaking news stories involving actions like this, it's always kind of fluid. So they call it, you know, the fog of war. Sometimes you're getting all these different reports and you're trying to figure out, you know, what what exactly has gone on. So I'm always hesitant to go too far down this because you might have reports that are incorrect. Um, the the Metropolitan Police have declared this to be this is in London, have declared this to be a, a, a major incident. And at least at this point, at this point. Um, they are treating it as a terrorist incident. Now, again, evidence might surface to suggest that it's something other than this. If you've ever been to London, you have you have been to Parliament, and you have seen Westminster Bridge, which is the bridge that kind of leads to, to Parliament. What happened this morning, our time, um, of course, London is, what, six hours ahead of us. Um, here's the report. I'm looking at the report from the Daily Mail. Again, these are early reports. Um, Parliament is in lockdown. Police open fire outside Westminster and shoot knife-wielding man amid reports of an explosion and at least 12 pedestrians mowed down on a bridge. Here's what, um, here's what happened. A four-wheel drive car is said to have driven over Westminster Bridge, knocking down pedestrians who were on the bridge. A guy with a knife then got onto the grounds, into the grounds of Parliament, where he reportedly stabbed a police officer. The middle-aged attacker was then shot by armed officers as the area was cleared by emergency services. Parliament was suspended. The prime minister who was there was rushed from the scene in an unmarked police car. Um, There are, again, there are some injuries uh, that are here, and I I don't know any more about it than that. But it was a guy who was, again, in a vehicle, drove the four-wheel drive vehicle across Westminster Bridge, 
um, hit some pedestrians. Um, I'm looking at some of the photographs from people who are, you know, were clearly injured and are being treated, don't know the severity of the injuries. Uh, the assailant, like I say, has been um, shot on the scene. So, um, you know, we'll, more and more details will emerge and we'll con- con- continue to keep you updated. I don't get the idea that it is an active an active as far as I don't know that they're looking for anybody else, but we'll continue to keep you updated. And like I say, London police are treating this for the moment as a terrorist incident, depending on, you know, where things go from there. So that is, of course, the big news. It, the scary thing about this is, it, remember we had a situation where you had the guy who like drove through the flower mart. Um, was that in Nice or wherever? You know, who, who used the car as as the, the instrument of destruction. That's that's one of the scary type of things that you have somebody who gets in a four wheel drive vehicle and decides that they just want to plow over as many people as they can. There's only so much you can do to prevent things like that. So more details will be forthcoming. All right. I want to completely switch gears and revisit something that we talked about last week because there's a new development in it. The Chancellor at Lacrosse, the UW Lacrosse Chancellor, is a guy named Joe Gao. And several weeks ago, after President Trump announced his first travel ban, the one that ran into the legal problems with the court because it it just had various due process issues that I think have largely been uh, fixed with the second travel ban, but time will tell. He sends out a lengthy letter on on an email on UW lacrosse facilities uh, essentially criticizing the travel ban and talking about how you know UW lacrosse is welcoming all these different types of things blah de blah blah de blah blah de blah um after he sends this out he gets a lot of blowback from people saying Hey, what what are you doing? You know, why are you taking this political position? You know, why are you setting yourself up as the anti-Trump? And if you want to do that, it's fine. But why are you using your position and your official responsibilities and your official title and UW resources to do that? So he ends up then backing away from that that statement that he, he sends out. Well, what happens is there is a UW lacrosse police dispatcher and. What what ends up happening is is after after that email comes out, um, she apparently um, engages. She's talking to one of her coworkers, and and the way I think it happened is the coworker kind of in, engages her, and th- this woman says they're they're talking about the letter that the chancellor sent out, the email the chancellor sent out, and the, the lady says, "Hey, I I agree with Trump's travel ban." I think it's going to prevent terrorists from entering the country. And, you know, those people, you know, who are coming into the country, I think they should go back from where they came. Now, maybe, maybe you agree with her. Maybe you disagree with her. But last time I checked, even in lacrosse, it was kind of a free country. So she is responding to the things, the political statements that the chancellor ended up making. Well, the employee that she says this to, then goes and complains. I can't believe this woman said that. She said these people should go back where they came from, and she supports the travel ban. And the the chancellor then fires this dispatcher, fires her, allegedly saying that she had violated their code of conduct by engaging in um, unbecoming conduct. 
Um, unbecoming conduct means using threatening or abusive language directed towards a fellow employee, and that includes offensive language, whether or not it's directed towards anyone in particular, regardless of the intent. So presumably when she says, hey, I agree with Trump's travel ban, and I think some of these people should go back where they came from, that now is, at least in the minds of the chancellor of UW Lacrosse, that is a fireable offense. So he tells her, you're going to be terminated unless you resign. She says no. Um, so they fire her. Well, then the lawyers get involved, and the lawyers go to the chancellor, and they say, I- I'm kind of paraphrasing here, what the hell were you doing? <laughs> uh, it's like, you just you just fired this woman for, for doing that? No hearing, no due process, no nothing? You better get her job back. <laughs> and so then, with his tail between his legs, the lefty chancellor at UW Lacrosse says, okay, we're, we, we, we're sorry we did this. We didn't give her due process. Um, we're going to offer her her job back. Well, here's the latest development. Um, apparently, you know, her attorney says, okay, she was, she was fired um, improperly. Her rights were violated. She was fired for expressing her opinions, and she wants $250,000, um, at which point in time now the chancellor is kind of humming a, humming a, humming a, um, you know, I have $250,000. Well, well we're, we're, we're not going to pay, um, but, but we're, we're not going to pay. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. What do you think about this entire situation? The decision to fire the woman by the left-wing chancellor at UW Lacrosse for responding to his email in the first place. The decision to then back off after the lawyers tell him that he's out of line, offer her a job back. Now she says, I want two hundred and fifty grand. I was wrongfully terminated. Your reaction to this entire story, 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did she deserve to get fired? Does she deserve $250,000? What do you think? We discuss next. It's 1044, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1048, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, the lady was originally fired or forced to resign by the UW Lacrosse Chancellor because... Well, I think the reality is he didn't like the fact that she didn't like what he said about Trump's travel ban, and she said so. Um, after the lawyers say to him, hey, you're way out of line, you got to give her due process, he offers her a job back. She now says, hey, I want $250,000 in damages. What do you think? Let's start with Roger in Germantown. Roger, good morning. Good morning. By his own standards and rules, given his original email and his subsequent actions, he has offended many people, and therefore, he should fire himself. Yeah. I, I do think there's Why an interesting double standard. Yeah. I, I do think there's an interesting double standard that if you're going to, and, and the more I find out about this case, what happened is you had one of the other coworkers who kind of baited this lady, you know, went in and engaged, what do you think about the chancellor's order? And then, you know, she answers there, and, and then, you know, oh, people are appalled. Let me ask you the larger question, though, and, and I, I don't, disagree with you that in this particular case this guy has acted like a complete bozo what do you think about two hundred fifty thousand dollars does she deserve that kind of money well it sounds like a lot of money but let's look at the situation the situation is that she if she goes back to work she's facing facing a hostile environment well that's yeah with the president who wants to fire her she's got a target on her back the slightest misstep and she'll be fired so the question is can she get an equal paying job yeah. 
with equal pleasure in doing the job right. easily. And if not, then quarter of a million doesn't sound like a whole lot to me. Yeah, no, thank you. You, you mean you raise a very interesting question about that, which is, okay, you, you've, you've been in this job for a number of years. You've now been illegally fired by the by the chancellor or forced to resign by the chancellor. Um, and I say, say illegally, I have no trouble saying that because, I mean, the lawyer said, hey, you didn't give their due process. So now that's the situation. Do you want to go back there? Because you're right, Roger. She's going to have a target on her back. And you know as long as this character gal is the, the chancellor at UW Lacrosse, um, she's going to be at least a pariah among a certain segment of that community because she's going to be viewed as this racist. This is this woman who only has this job because, well, you know, the, the lawyers forced them back. Would you want to go back into that situation? Lonnie in Mequon. Lonnie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I thought this was about as crazy a thing as I've ever seen. I mean, somewhere along the line, sooner or later, she should actually get more money than what she's asking for because these left-wing coops have gone right off the edge. They mm-hmm. step on our Constitution and trample all over it day in and day out. About time somebody stood up and said, huh, I'm entitled to my free speech just like everybody else well right this i mean i mean the idea what's so offensive to me is okay so you you have the chancellor who uses his position and taxpayer resources to send out what i think reasonable people could interpret as an anti-trump screed okay fine he doesn't like this and he has every right to express that um again in bars or whatever he sends this thing out to the university it gets so much criticism that he has to walk it back and then you have some other employee my guess is they were gunning for this lady some other employee or student or whatever who goes and engages her who actually my understanding is initiates the conversation gee what did you think of the probably knowing how she felt about these things. What did you think about this? And then, you know, she tells him what she thought and how she disagrees and and how she, heaven forbid, says, yeah, I support the travel ban. And and yes, I think we've got to stop terrorists from coming into this country. And, And yeah, I think we've got too many people that are immigrating. All right. Again, maybe you disagree with her. Maybe she's dead wrong. But that doesn't mean that she's not entitled to that opinion. What happened at the UW Lacrosse and what the chancellor did was appalling. And I think this is one of these situations where if there's not some form of discipline for him, number one, for putting out the statement in the first place, and number two, for trying to force this woman to resign, if he is not disciplined in some way, shape, or form, that is going to be what the real travesty is. Because this is an out-of-control guy who, at least in this particular situation, I know some people have kids at UW Lacrosse and say, well, we think he does a good job. Well, not in this particular case. You know, not in this particular case. UW Lacrosse is one of the Wisconsin institutions that has been overrun with political correctness for quite a while now. Remember the big brouhaha, what was it, a year ago, when some semi-truck with a bug catcher on the front that's in the shape of a Confederate flag, people see this and they just freak out. It's like safe rooms and it's denounced by, <coughs> I mean, really, it's a, it's a bug catcher on a truck. And you have people that are just completely and totally freaked out by this entire thing. It's kind of like, okay, give me, just just give me a break. And this is, of course, this is the culture that exists at UW Across. Now, for me, in all honesty, the tougher question is, how much is this worth? Does it seem to me that she was wrongfully discharged? Yes. And that doesn't even seem to me to be at issue. I mean, I think everybody agrees she was fired without due process. Would I, would I want to go back into a situation like that? 
I agree with one of our callers. Absolutely not, because you know, you know they're setting her up to fail, and you know that she is going to have that target on her back. So then, I guess the question becomes: Given the fact that she was wrongfully singled out by the chancellor, given the fact that she was fired without due process, given the fact that it's probably not practical for her to go back into what probably would be a hostile work environment, how much is that worth? Is it worth two hundred fifty grand? I don't know. But it's definitely worth something. And unfortunately, the taxpayers are going to have to pick up the tab, which is why there should be some accountability from the bozo that created this whole problem in the first place, which is the UW Lacrosse Chancellor. It's 1057, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. As a number of you remember, of you remember um, the, the various flaps involving UW Lacrosse under UW Lacrosse Chancellor Joe Gao. Um, uh, and, and what just a hot mess it is. Uh, uh, again, i got to give another PG-13 related warning. Um, in October of 2015, the, the University of Wisconsin lacrosse dorm director, who made about thirty two grand a year, sent out a graphic email about how to, tutoring men, how to help women overcome what he called an orgasm deficit. Okay, so this this guy sends out th- this email, a uh, graphic email including pejorative terms for men's and women's genitalia. It goes to nearly three hundred students. All right, so this is what the character sends out. Um, he gets in trouble for doing this. So now the woman. The female dispatcher, who is a conservative, who supports Donald Trump's policies, she gets fired by the bozo UW lacrosse chancellor. She gets fired for saying, I agree with Trump's policies and we got too many immigrants. So what does the dorm director, who sends out an email, pejorative terms with men's and women's genitalia, talking about orgasm deficits, what happens to him? He gets a reprimand, a letter in his file, you know, and that's... And again, that's that's what the the uh, the chancellor says is appropriate. He said, "Well, this was, um, you know, this this isn't sexual abuse, um, but this is, you know, designed to promote discussion. Um, but but he should not have done it. So, you think if the dorm director did this and he was a Trump supporter, he'd be gone? Well, I think in a heartbeat. So UW lacrosse once again completely out of control. Does the lady deserve a quarter of a million dollars? I, I don't know about that, but." But if you want to look at the source of problems, I think it starts really close to home, including the guy that is running that place. Maybe it's something that the Board of Regents should take a look at. All right, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the program, including the latest update on what's going on in the situation in London. London, stick around, 1059. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. We will continue, of course, to keep you updated on what's going on in, in London. Uh, terrorist, or at least they're treating it as a terrorist uh, terrorist situation at the time being, in a four-wheel drive vehicle driving across Westminster Bridge, rammed into several pedestrians on the bridge, um, some of whom appears were injured severely, but we, we don't know what their condition is. The gun, The person then got out, was carrying a knife, uh, stabbed a police officer and then was shot. So the incident appears to be over to that extent, but now everybody's trying to figure out, you know, what's what is the aftermath of that. And we will continue to keep you updated on that. 
Quick reminder, we have announced we are doing Insight this year, Insight 2017. It's going to be Wednesday, April 9th at the Country Springs Hotel. A little bit different than the past. I mean, the same general format, but uh, a very eclectic group of guests, and we'll be announcing the guests over the course of the next several days. And one of the things I want to do this year is not just talk to newsmakers, but also really find out about the, the people, who are the people behind the people that you read about in the headlines. And uh, we've got a very interesting series of guests lined up. Today we announced that uh, one of our panels is going to be not one, not two, but three members of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. And I don't want to talk to them about you know what their ruling is going to be in a particular case. That would be inappropriate. But I want to talk to them about who they are and how they got where they are and um, their, their perspectives on life and what it's like to be. I think for you know a lot of people, if you're if you're aspiring, for example, into a career in the law, you know, being a state supreme court justice is is, is a pinnacle. And we're going to be joined by Annette Zig, Justice Annette Ziegler, Justice Rebecca Bradley, and Justice uh, Daniel Kelly. So um, we will be making more announcements as the guests coming up. But it's going to be a wonderful night. It's April nineteenth at the Country Springs Hotel. I think the starts at six thirty, and tickets will go on sale on Friday. All right, much has been made of the, the Donald Trump immigration ban. And the, the original immigration ban that they rolled out, saying we're going to put a halt on immigration from six or seven different different countries. And in many cases, the countries we've selected, their, their governments are nothing more than regimes. And we're going to put a 90-day hold on immigration because we want to make sure we have appropriate vetting procedures. Well, that created all sorts of legal issues because... It didn't, the ban did not specify how it was going to treat people from those countries who already had green cards or visas or whatever. And under the law, you do, even if you're from a foreign country, if you've got a U.S. green card or you've got a visa, you have certain due process rights. And the original travel ban didn't account for that. Well, so they've come out with a new modified ban that does account for that. You still got a judge in Hawaii, a federal judge and one in Maryland who strikes these down, saying this, this is nothing more than discriminating against Muslims, despite the fact that the travel ban only applies to a limited number of countries, and there's all sorts of other majority Muslim countries that it doesn't apply to. I think these federal judges are whacked out. I, I, I do. I think they're making political statements. I think they're going to be reversed. But, but that's the history of this. Well, in the last day or two, the U.S. and, the, and Great Britain both announced new policies banning passengers traveling from airports in several Muslim-majority countries. It bans them from bringing laptops, tablets, or other portable electrical electronic devices on board with them when they apply. The U.K. ban applies to six countries. The U.S. ban applies to ten airports in eight Muslim-majority countries. Now, what this ban would do is essentially it would say, if you are not allowed to bring into the cabin an electronic device really larger than a cell phone, so no laptop computers, no, tel- no, no tablets, nothing like that. The concern is that um, authorities have been worried that terrorist groups like the Islamic State and like you know Al-Qaeda what they're trying to do is they're trying to find ways to smuggle electronic ex- explosive devices hidden inside electronic gadgets like laptops. And so has this happened yet? No, but they are concerned with that. Um, 
For example, they say that al-Qaeda's affiliate in Yemen has spent years inventing explosives that are difficult to detect, including trying to figure out how to disguise bombs in devices like cell phones. So the concern is, what we want to do is we don't want people to be able to have access to these in the cabin. You can still, you know, if you are flying from one of these countries into Great Britain or into the United States, you can still, you know, take a laptop. You can still take a tablet. It just has to be in your check bag. You cannot bring it into the cabin. Nothing bigger than a cell phone in the cabin. And this applies to several either majority Muslim airports or, in the case of Great Britain, majority Muslim countries. Certainly not all, but some. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, some federal judges are all up in arms about Trump putting a temporary travel ban on people coming in from certain Muslim-majority countries. In this case, this is a ban on being able to bring able to be on being able to bring uh, electronic devices larger than a cell phone into the cabins of aircrafts, and it's targeted at people who are flying in from these various countries. Now, it doesn't matter what your religion is. I mean, if I'm flying in from one of these designated countries, I'm not Muslim. I'm still not going to be allowed to bring my laptop into the cabin. Cell phone, yes. I'm going to have to check my laptop. So is this unconstitutional? Is this discriminatory? Should we be outraged that this is what we are doing as part of our security? Are you offended by this? Because, again, if you're flying from one of these airports into the U.S., you're not going to be able to have your laptop with you in the cabin. You're just going to have to get by with your cell phone. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If we're doing this ban, in order to be fair, should we say this should be a ban on flying anywhere? Just no no uh, devices larger than a cell phone allowed in the cabin. 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1118, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Kevin in Milwaukee. Kevin, you're first. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Um, well, my concern is um, I, I travel periodically to Africa, and on an 18-hour flight, it's nice to have the TVs mm-hmm. in the back of the seat. So now you have Boeing talking about bringing out planes that don't have them um, with the understanding you can be able to use your laptop you know, or, or tablets or this. So if they do put this band through, you know, what is that going to leave companies like Boeing, you know, mm-hmm. trying to... Well, no, well, it will be annoying for certain passengers. I mean, for example... Um Let's say you let's say you work on the plane. You, you've got you've got your twenty hour flight, for example, and you know you 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 want to not just watch a movie, but maybe you want to work, and you're not going to be able to bring your laptop. So there will there will definitely be a level of inconvenience from this. There's no question about it. Sure, sure. But I guess the question becomes, all right, so so it's inconvenient. Um, so you have to you know bring a folder with some of your work so you don't get to work on the computer. Is that is that unreasonable? Um, I guess in the day and age that we're in currently, um, you know, with, with the things that we're having to deal with, I guess if you can eliminate the possibilities, you know, and, and further worry about the other, the other issues, um, right. you know, I, I guess, no, then, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about safety here. So. Well, right. And you're all, right. I mean, I guess I don't know that there's a, I, I do, I, I understand that there, this is, that this is an annoyance. And I, and I mean, I can easily picture, you know, some business person, you know, on, on that 12 hour flight 
and what you want is you want to have your laptop with you and you want to be able to do some work. I, I understand all that, but there's a lot of inconveniences we go through. I guess the question becomes, you know, is, is this, is this something that is unconstitutional? Is this something that's uh, offensive? Should we be appalled? Is this a slap again at the Muslim world that we're directing, you know, this to some of these? Let's talk to Shannon in Brookfield. Shannon, good morning. Hi, good morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Yeah. Actually, I am kind of concerned if the laptop and bigger than cell phone will not go, will not go on the, on the upper level. And if it, if it will go on the low, uh, they can put anything in the laptop, any electronic, any explosion device, anything, you know. So are we safe? Well, the I mean here I mean thanks to culture I mean here here's the way I understand it. and and that that's a very good question I get the, the if the question is if you're concerned that somebody is going to be able to put a bomb in in your laptop computer does it make sense to what what is the advantage of saying it's got to be in the cargo hold as opposed it, it as opposed to being in the cabin I mean that that's I guess that that's kind of, and that's actually that's the first question. That, that I had, if the worry is that that that's going to be the case. Now, here's what I understand the, the justification to be. First of all, um, the, the security officials are not commenting on why checking an electronic device in the cargo department is safer than, than carrying it in the cabin. Okay, so they're, they're not, except to the effect that, let's say you wanted to blow up the plane, Lord forbid, and, and you've got the bomb that's there in the cargo department. You'd still have to have, you, you'd have to have some radio, presumably some radio controlled device that you had with you in the cabin. Now, is that possible? Yes, but apparently they're more concerned with the fact that right now you don't have to worry as much about the radio controlled device as you do about actually somebody physically having the thing, which is the bomb with them. I, I'm not a security expert. That, that's just the way I understand this to be. Secondly. My understanding is that in efforts to detect the bomb, the cargo gets more gets a different kind of scrutiny than the the stuff that you bring on. Um, like for example, for example, when I was flying last time I flew out of Rome, all right, the, all the the checked bags went to a completely different terminal. And they had like the X-ray screening, and they had drug-sniffing dogs, and they had all sorts of stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, the story I always tell is I, I got I got called out of the line to go, and they they took me in this little cart halfway across the airport tarmac because there was something quote unquote suspicious in in one of the bags we had, and they made me open it up. <laughs> that was the idea. And I, like, okay, and I knew exactly what this was, and it wasn't, by the way, in my bag. But okay, so I, I opened this up, and it was no problem. But but that's how they handled that. My understanding, and again, without being a complete expert on this, is that they the checked stuff gets a different level of scrutiny than the stuff that you carry on. I mean, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, last time, well, when I take a laptop and I and I take it with me, it's it, it's it just goes through. I mean, I take the laptop out. I put it on top of the bin, and it, it goes through. Um, so that that I think is what the thinking is. There's a different level of scrutiny for the checked bags. So I don't claim to be an expert, but that's that's where they're coming from. I guess my point is, 
who cares? I mean, they're, they're inconven- would this be inconvenient if I was on a 12-hour flight and I wanted to work and things like that? Yes, it would be inconvenient. But you know what? Um, if there are concerns that this is what the latest technology is and they'd rather be safe than sorry, okay, then, then just, just take a book and, and read along the way. So that, that at least is my understanding of why they do it. And as long as they apply this across the board, I don't see constitutional issues. I mean, as long as they say, Jeff, it doesn't matter whether it's you or it's Hondo or somebody who is Muslim or somebody who whatever, as long as they apply this rule to everybody who is flying into either Great Britain or the United States from one of these countries, I, I think, to me, it con- passes constitutional muster. Is it necessary? Will it stop stuff from happening that's bad? I don't know, but it seems to me that this is a small price to pay. It's an inconvenience, but just an inconvenience and I don't know, just kind of decompress. If you can't take your laptop on the plane with you, like I say, take a good book. It's 1127, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. He's called countless big moments in the NBA and March Madness. Turner Sports play-by-play voice Kevin Harlan joins Greg Matzik to break down the NCAA tournament. That is tonight on Sports Central at 615. Okay, Matt in Hartford writes... Um, is there some history with these items, talking about laptop computers and things like that being an issue? I haven't heard of any. Actually, I've heard of more issues with the lithium batteries in Samsung phones. Yes, that, that is correct. Here is, again, what I understand. Uh, security people um, have been worried, the intelligence analysts have been worried for a long time that the terrorist organizations are working on developing that next, quote-unquote, big thing, um, the, the next way of smuggling bombs. And what they're concerned about is that, I, I don't know if they have information believing that terrorists have that ability or that they're close to it, but the concern is that bombs will be hidden in these larger electronic devices. Has it happened yet? No. They're worried that either the technology exists or it's close to that, so they're trying to be safe, not sorry. Now, I understand it's it's not a perfect world because... And for example, if you wanted to blow up a plane and you were able to get one of these into, again, your, your checked bag, set it on a timer, maybe something works. But I think they feel more comfortable that they're going to be able to find the stuff in the checked bag. So, no, it, it hasn't happened yet, but, but they are trying to be proactive with regard to this. Uh, Kate Walworth writes, it amazes me how many people complain about security protocols when they fly. Everyone is up in arms about these kind of things until their plane uh, blows up. <laughs> well, that's the whole idea. We're trying to make sure that those planes don't uh, blow up. And it's an inconvenience, but there's a lot of inconveniences that go with flying. No surprise here. News of the day. Sears and Kmart says substantial doubt they can stay in business. I remember when America shopped at Sears. When I when I was growing up, Sears was the big store. That actually the Sears on North Avenue, that was like the place that people came from all over southeastern Wisconsin to to shop at. Well, well now Sears and Kmart are going, I mean, just belly up faster than you can imagine. The company that owns Sears, the department store chains that dominated retail for decades, said yesterday it faces substantial doubt about its ability to stay in business unless it can borrow more and tap cash from more of its assets. Now, Sears has been selling off the Craftsman brand. Uh, Sears has been selling off the, the Kenmore brand. They're, they're just, um, they're, they're just right now, and they're, they're just flailing. 
Um, they say our, their historical operating results indicate substantial doubt exists related to the company's ability to continue as a going concern. It is amazing to me that when you consider what a present Sears was in the American culture, Kmart to a lesser extent, but especially Sears, that we would now be talking about essentially two years from now, there's probably not going to be any Sears. I mean, when they come out and they say, unless we can tap into a huge new source of cash, we're probably going to go under. And my question would be, okay, who in their right mind would lend Sears any sort of substantial sums of cash? So Sears used to be where America shopped. Um, probably not in a couple years. Not proud to say that, but I think it is just the reality. It's 1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Paul Ryan, the House of Representatives, is supposed to join us this time tomorrow. Um, I think we're scheduled to talk to Paul at 1145. Uh, tomorrow is, of course, a big day because it is the day that, if all goes as scheduled, the House of Representatives is going to be voting on whatever version of repeal and replace for Obamacare is on the table. Now, Hondo points out to me that Politico, uh, their latest reports are, if the vote were held right now, there's not enough votes to pass it. Um, my, but, of course, 24 hours is an eternity in politics. And, you know, my guess is that there's going to be uh, some, you know, wheeling, dealing and um, some arm twisting and, and whatever. Um, obviously, they're not going to allow the matter to go to – I wouldn't think they're going to allow the matter to go to a vote unless they're confident that they, in fact, have the votes. But uh, tomorrow's going to be a big day when it comes to repeal and replace Obamacare, something that's been a Republican mainstay campaign issue for the better part of the last six years. And uh, we are scheduled once again to talk to Paul Ryan 1145 tomorrow. Okay, let's let's switch gears from some of the heavy lifting stuff that we've been doing earlier today. Um, I am, it's no secret, I, I'm a huge fan of movies. I will say I fell out of the habit of going to first-run movies, actually going to the, the movie theater. Now, the only time lately that I go to movie theater, historically, the only time in the last several years I'd go to movies is um, if my my niece or my nephew, more particularly my nephew, who's into the big Marvel blockbuster films, you know, I, I'd go with him and my brother and sister-in-law and my niece, you know, and we'd go opening night for Iron Man or for the Avengers or, or whatever. And it was kind of like a family sort of thing, which is something that we could all do together to go to uh, the movies. But other than that, typically I don't go to first-run movies. Now, now lately... Um, I have been going out on dates occasionally, and then you just, you know, your movies become date nights and things like that. So I, I have been going to the movie theaters a little bit more. But still, as somebody who watches movies, most of the movies I end up seeing, I wait till they come out on DVD, or they I wait till they come out on one of the on-demand services, or I, I wait till it's on Cinemax or HBO or the movie channel. That's how I see most of the first-run movies. Typically, what happens is the distributors, the people that make the movies, who then distribute them to the movie theaters, they have this deal. As a general rule, most major movies are only made available for people to rent or download or whatever 90 days after their release. So if you want to see the first-run movie, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to see it in the theater or you're going to have to wait three months. And that's that's the way that essentially you force people to go to the theaters. And I don't mean force in a bad way, but it's like, hey, this movie is coming out. Um, I could wait till it comes out on DVD, or I could wait till it comes out on on-demand so I could get it. 
but I don't want to wait three months. I want to see the latest John Wick movie with Keanu Reeves. I did see that movie as well. That, and that was not a date movie, by the way. Uh, but I did see that John Wick 2 was not a date movie, but I, I did see that with my best friend and my best friend's son. So anyhow, but typically it's 90 days before these things are, are available. And that's what the, the movie theaters, they, that's what they kind of insist on because they, you know, if they know that for these first run movies, they want there to be some degree of urgency. They want you to have to come out, you know, and, and spend the $18 on the, you know, giant 10 pound Nestle's crunch bar or, or whatever that, that is. They want to, they want to make you, you do that. And if people knew, gee, this movie is opening on Friday, but two weeks from now, I can get it on demand. Well, a lot of people might say, well, I'll just, I'll just wait for it on demand. I don't want to wait three months, but I could wait a week or two. Well, here's the latest story. Um, many of six of the, as a matter of fact, six of the seven biggest Hollywood studios are seriously considering changing the model and rushing the time, increasing or reducing the time for when they're going to make first run movies available. Um, what they're looking at doing, for example, is trying to cut a deal with the movie theaters, the exhibitors who are saying, tell you what. Instead of this 90-day period, let us let us make the stuff available on demand, let's say 21 days later, three weeks later. But here's the deal. We're going to charge people 50 bucks if they want to rent a movie. You want to rent a movie in this window, you're going to have to pay 50 bucks. But what we'll do is we'll kick some of that back to you, the movie theaters. So th- that would be the idea. You could watch it sooner. But you'd have to pay fifty. Some of the other studios are looking at this and saying, "Well, we think maybe fifty dollars is too much." But maybe what we'll do is we'll charge thirty dollars and only make people have to wait like thirty days. You wait a month, not three months, but you have to pay thirty dollars. All right, I am intrigued by pop culture and I'm intrigued, intrigued by um, consumer tastes. Uh, matter of fact, Scotland Yard. Just as an aside, Scotland Yard is going to be having a press conference um, when it kicks off. We will cover it, but we're going to stick with the programming right now. So here's what I want to talk to you about from an entertainment perspective. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage toll free talk line. Would you be willing to pay fifty bucks to watch a first run movie at home two or three weeks after it opened? Is that too much money? Or would you say, hey, that's great, because end of the day, I don't need to see the movie opening night or opening weekend anyways, and, you know, 50 bucks, that's still going to save me money over buying tickets and going to the movie theater. Is, is this model, would this work? Would a lot of people do this? Would this kill first-run movie houses? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage toll-free talk line. Let's start with Jeff in Wauwatosa. Jeff, good morning. Hey, Jeff, I'm all for this, and the reason why is because I do go to movies on a regular basis, and I've been to a variety of theaters, and it really seems like about 75% of the time there's there's some issue going on that prevents me from enjoying the movie. Mm-hmm. So, the example, oh, God. Oh, no, go, no. So, so the idea, you, you want to see the movie, um, and even though 50 bucks is a lot of money, you'd be willing to wait three weeks if you could watch it at your own home. Yeah, I don't know about fifty bucks, but but um, if I can avoid what happened when I saw Split, which is when a fight almost broke out right, right. in the theater, <laughs> yeah. I, I I would uh, be willing to consider uh, uh, you know around thirty bucks for for a movie. Okay, well, th- that's one of the numbers that they're throwing around now. 
the, the different studios are trying to work out different deals with the distributors. The fifty bucks is to be able to watch it in seventeen days. The thirty bucks is to be willing if you're willing to wait a month after its release. So they're they're playing around with all this because, like I say, right now it's typically ninety days. It's three months. Rich on the north side. Rich on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. What do you think? Um, I think it's kind of tough at first because now when you go to a theater, like I always go to that big screen bistro. Right, sure, out, out in Waukesha. Lot, yep, sure. Yeah, I got a lot of the creature comforts there. Yep. And I'm paying a pretty penny anyways. Yep. So that 50 isn't all that enticing. However, if they were to say uh, we could pay that 50 and see it the same day it actually drops theaters yeah immediately yeah i don't think anybody's talking about that though because i think the movie theaters are afraid if you did that it would it would completely put them out of business well they're going to go the way of the shopping malls eventually you think so i think so we're going to download everything yeah i think they're i mean see that's that is the challenge um and that's why they're, they're trying to kind of reach an accommodation and and part of this deal is out of that 50 bucks there would be some money that would be kicked back to the movie theaters to help make up for the, the lost business. I have to tell you, I think if this becomes the vogue, if this becomes the norm, I, I think you're exactly right. This will this will hasten the dinosaur in the tar pit thing because, I mean, it, more and more people will, will, I think, get used to that. And how many movies really come out that, that, you, that you have to see on opening night? I mean, I understand there's some. Now, the the flip side, what movie theaters have going for them is again, it's the date night thing. It's it's something for you know, it's it's something you can do, and it's some place you can go, and that's always going to have an appeal. But you know, there's all sorts of other things that people can can do in that regard as well. I I think this is going to happen in the next couple of years. I don't know exactly what version of this is going to be, um, but my prediction is within a year or so. You're not going to have to wait 90 days anymore to be able to watch a first-run movie. You, you might have to pay, and I don't know what the dollar amount is going to be, and I don't know if it's going to be two weeks or three weeks or four weeks or a month, but I do think this is a trend, and I think just like we've looked at the demise of newspapers, this is going to hasten the demise of movie theaters. It's 1145, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Eleven fifty. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. The Bucks' long West Coast road trip wraps up tonight against the Kings. Ted Davis has the broadcast live from Sacramento. He'll begin our coverage with Buck shots at nine ten tonight. All right. Let me say this. I I don't think I said it on the air, but I, I thought it. I admit that I I thought it. Um, this West Coast road trip, I thought was going to be the end of the Bucks' playoff chances. I mean, how many years? Have they been doing okay? And then they go on one of these six-game road strips, and they lose five out of six, or they lose all six, and and any hope is gone. This has been an amazing trip. I mean, they won against the Los Angeles Clippers. They won against the Los Angeles Lakers. They beat Portland. Lost to Golden State, but Golden State's a heck of a team. This has been an incredibly successful road trip. It makes you think that that maybe the the Bucs are – are rounding into shape at the appropriate time, and with Middleton coming back, they're getting past the loss of Jabari Parker. I was, I admit, I was one of these people that before they went on this road trip, I was willing to write off their playoff chances. Now, candidly, um, once they get this behind them, I think the the schedule opens up a little bit. I would not be surprised to see the Bucks not only make the playoffs, but if they continue playing like this, they, they could. They could be a six seed, maybe. You know, I'm not sure much higher than that, but you know, not necessarily 
somebody that's going to be cannon fodder for the Cleveland Cavaliers in the first round. And and credit where credit is due, I was skeptical, but I think this is um, I think this is pretty good. Okay, it's coming. We've got rail. Um, if you thought it was safe to go back to the streets of the city of Milwaukee, well, get ready for more construction. Um, the rails are here. Fox 6 News reporting the first rails for the Milwaukee streetcar have been delivered. Uh, yesterday, they were dropped off. They're apparently being uh, kept underneath the Milwaukee's Marquette Interchange. Construction for the streetcar project is set to begin in early April, starting on St. Paul Avenue. The construction of the streetcar route will move throughout the city through 2017 into 2018. Despite the best efforts of lots of fair-minded people, Tom Barrett is going to get his way. The trolley is, in fact, going to happen. And I continue to believe that 20 years from now, people are going to look back at this moment in the city of Milwaukee history, watching trolley cars go around with nobody riding on them, if there still is even a trolley operating 20 years from now, And they're going to look back and they're going to say, what were those people thinking about in 2015 and 2016 and 2017? Why did anybody think that this trolley was a good idea? Time will tell, but I predict that we're just one step further for what is going to be known in history as Tom's Trolley Folly.